The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today's guest is Jim Sandman, the chair of the ABA's Coronavirus Task Force and President Emeritus of the Legal Services Corporation. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to join us in what is undoubtedly a very busy time for you. Thanks for having me, Jack. Jim, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? You're in Washington, D.C., I believe. How are things there? We're doing fine under the circumstances. My wife is working from home. She's an environmental lawyer. Our daughter, who usually lives and works in Baltimore uh, with the Federal Public Defender's Office, has come to stay with us for the duration, and she, too, is working from home. So one unexpected silver lining of this situation is that we have our daughter with us and it's nice uh, to to have her uh, oh that's great meals together we go out for walks together where we've had more time together in the last month than we've had in years uh and and where's your daughter normally located in baltimore uh she works okay. for the federal public defender's office there okay so not too far away normally but but uh, great to have her under your your roof for a while exactly uh, and, and, and Jim, uh, what's on your mind most right now? Oh, I'd have to say it's the breadth and depth of the impact of the coronavirus. Uh, the number of people infected and the number of people that we've lost. And as of yesterday, 22 million people out of work. Uh, that's just breathtaking. There's been nothing in my lifetime that I've experienced of this scale and impact. And the people out of work are the people who can least afford to be without a paycheck for any, any period of time. So it's, uh, that's, those circumstances are very much on my mind. And, you know, before we move on to the, the profession and some of the work you're, you're doing with the, the ABA and the, the task force, can, can you tell me just some of the personal impacts you've had from from COVID-19, and I, I believe you've been in, in D.C. for the, the duration of the, the, the pandemic uh, over the course of the last month or so. Can, can you just describe how things have evolved in D.C. over the last, the last month and, and, again, what those impacts have been for you personally? Well, uh, things in, have, have slowed down incredibly. This would normally be peak tourist season in, in Washington. We would usually be overwhelmed with people visiting from around the country and around the world. Uh, this hit during cherry blossom season, and the streets are empty. Uh, I guess the good news is if you live here, you can walk or bike to, uh, to see the cherry blossoms and enjoy a beautiful springtime in, in Washington, but it is eerie. Um, it's affected me in the way it's affected everybody. I'm homebound. Uh, it's, it's thrown off my exercise routine. I'm a creature of habit. I live in a condo building that has a gym, and I start every day at 5.15 in the morning, spending an hour in the gym. Like, they closed the gym. So uh, just, just before this podcast, I uh, did one of my new exercise rituals. I climb stairs. Uh, it, it is 7 floors from the top of our building to the lowest level of the parking garage. And I go up and down the stairs 14 times. That's wow, the equivalent that's... of 98, 
98 flights of stairs. I run down them and I come up two at a time. And the first time I did that, I was sore for three days. <laughs> That's, that is uh, quite the feat. That sounds like uh, you're adhering to a pretty strict exercise regimen. I am. Uh, and how about your, uh, your family said you're, you're staying at your, your house with your, your wife and, and your daughter was able to, to join you. Um, how have you found being in, in close quarters for, for that length of time? It helps that we like each other. Uh, it, it hasn't been a problem. We each have our own space. I think that makes a, a difference. Uh, we have a, a home office and my wife works from there. Our daughter uh, works in our spare in the spare bedroom and I work in the dining area. So we're not on top of each other. And they're very good about uh, keeping work hours. They, they go into their workspace in the morning and come out for lunch. And so, so we're not uh, in each other's space during the course of the day. We have meals together and it's, it's actually been quite pleasant. Uh, and so when you've got this social time, that's shared social time that you have together, you're not treading over you trying to do work and, and other people are trying to have social time. So, so Jim, I'd like to talk next about the, uh, the ABA coronavirus task force and, and tell us a little bit about the story that, that led to you being involved in this task force. Uh, as from what I understand, you had, a. Uh, uh, an unsuccessful attempt to take a little bit of a break after uh, a nine-plus-year stint at the the Legal Services Corporation, and and tell us what happened next. So I left the Legal Services Corporation on February nineteenth after nine years there, uh, with a plan to take a few months off uh, before starting a next gig. I plan to do something in uh, academia uh, to affiliate with a law school, uh, but thought I'd have some fun. And I thought I'd do some traveling and just enjoy Washington in a way that you're not able to when you're working full-time or more than full-time. And I, uh, I was having a great time until the coronavirus came along. And I got a call one day from Judy Perry Martinez, the president of the American Bar Association, asking if I would be willing to chair a new coronavirus, coronavirus task force. And... Uh, I said yes uh, right away. I have enormous respect for Judy. I was honored to be asked. I, I believe in public service, and I think this issue and the uh, impact that the coronavirus has in a variety of legal environments is very important. So I was happy to say yes. So uh, my time off has kind of disappeared, and I'm busy up to my ears. Uh, and, and similarly, Judy uh, approached me and, and, and recruited me to join uh, the task force. And I, I think you've been doing a phenomenal job of, of chairing and navigating this task force efforts over the course of the last, the last month, Jim. Uh, and and I'm, I'm wondering if you can describe what the, the mandate of the, the task force is for our listeners and some of your uh, perspectives on what what success looks like for this task force if 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 you and 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 the broader task force if we are are, are doing our job properly can you put your finger on what what success looks like and, and maybe answer that after the first question which is what what is the task force setting out to do initially 
The task force is doing two things. First, uh, we're serving as an information clearinghouse for resources and information about the coronavirus and everything involving the legal profession, from new modes of practicing remotely uh, to new legal issues that are arising as a result of the virus. We're trying to do that in two ways. First, we're trying to uh, collect and organize and curate information prepared by others. There's a lot of great work being done in many places across the country involving coronavirus and the law. A lot of it is dispersed and siloed and it can be difficult to access on your own. So we're trying to organize it to make it easy to access so that people who have questions, who need information can get to it quickly and not have to sort through a mountain of information that can overload them. And then we try to push it out. Uh, we don't just try to collect it. Uh, we wanna make it easily available and deliver it to people in a way that's likely to reach them where they are. Uh, the other major thing we're doing is trying to mobilize pro bono resources. Uh, there is and is going to be a huge spike in the need for legal services, particularly by low-income people who can't afford a lawyer with the millions, the tens of millions of people out of work. And uh, I'm, I'm really heartened to see the outpouring of volunteer support from pro bono lawyers across the country asking how they can help. They need to be connected to opportunities. Uh, they, they, they don't just appear on their own. They need to be organized and we're helping to facilitate that. So those, those are the two main uh, missions, serving as an information clearinghouse and mobilizing pro bono resources. So let's talk first about the uh, information clearinghouse perspective with, with the uh, maybe 10,000 foot view you've got on the information that's out there and, and what is a very rapidly developing landscape. What would you identify as some of the, the key bits of information that, that our listeners should be aware of uh, about the, the crisis and maybe the resources that are available to them? Well, the first uh, issue that's affected every lawyer in any kind of practice has been having to uh, deliver legal services in a new way. Uh, it's the unusual lawyer who's used to working remotely full time for an extended period of time. And uh, part of what we've done is to try to make uh, webinars, training tools in available to people about what the best technology is, how to, how to get a practice set up. Uh, quickly. This has affected not only individuals, but organizations, legal aid organizations, for example. Uh, some of them were, were prepared to do this, but many not. And uh, not every lawyer had the equipment necessary, uh, both hardware and software, to be able to function effectively on, on a full-time basis. So uh, one of the things we've done is to try to uh, aggregate information about practice tools to prepare people to adapt to a new way of doing business quickly. And then uh, there are uh, substantive tools that we need to make available uh, to people. One of the most urgent uh, needs for legal services right now is getting information to people who are trying to access benefits, uh, whether it's unemployment insurance benefits or small businesses trying to access loans from the Small Business Administration. Uh, how to do that is not intuitive to many uh, people in need of assistance and equipping lawyers to direct people to the resources that are available to help them out is is important. Another uh, important 
area of legal lead right now is preparing wills and advanced directives for healthcare providers, uh, many of whom are younger and who had never thought uh, to prepare a will or a healthcare directive, but who have to be ready now uh, because they're putting themselves at risk uh, every day and uh, getting people lined up with, uh, with help to do that is critically important. Jim, with the perspective you, that you have on how things are playing out with coronavirus and the impacts it's having on the legal profession, is, is there anything that you understand to be true that you think the average lawyer hasn't fully internalized or, or maybe isn't aware of at all at the moment? Not that I could say with uh, with confidence. I, I do think, though, it, it will take a while for the the breadth of the impact here and the length of the impact, the temporal length of the impact mm -hmm. to sink in. This is not going to go away quickly. We're going to be living with the consequences of this for a long time. We will not be able just to flip a switch and turn the country on again and resume business as it was uh, at the beginning of February. Uh, we're going to be living in a new world mm -hmm. uh, w dealing with consequences of, the, of all the dislocation that's been caused. Uh, it, it, it will take a long time to recover. Just look at what's happening within the, the legal profession with bar exams being delayed, uh, new lawyers being delayed and their ability to enter into practice, associate programs being canceled. Uh, there is likely to be an effect on law, uh, school admissions uh, where people might wanna take a pause before they dive into law school, see how things settle out. Uh, it, it, I, I think we're still at a point where people are coping with their individual circumstances and, and getting adjusted. I think it will be a while before people realize what the broader societal and uh, legal profession impacts of the coronavirus are. And I, I don't want to put you on the spot, Jim, uh, but do you have, based on the, the data you've looked at and, and, and the sources you're hearing from a perspective on what kind of time frame we're looking at for some return to normalcy, even in, in partial form? I don't. Uh, and, the, the, and, and the reason is because of the numbers I see. Uh, the mm -hmm. number of deaths per day as of yesterday was still going up. I, I, I don't see that we can say we've peaked. Uh, and until we peak and have a sustained period where you begin to see a decline in the number of new infections and uh, the, the number of deaths, I, I don't know how you could predict that we're uh, on a path where we can begin to resume a normal way of, of doing business. I don't think we're there yet. I think there are indications that we may be nearing the peak, and there isn't going to be a single peak. It, it's going to depend on where you are. Right. Uh, there, there, there are ripple effects here where the initial impact has been felt in, uh, in some places that are hot spots. I expect things to dissipate there over time, but, uh, but it's going to creep across the country and affect places that have not been affected at scale yet, but will be uh, down the road. So I, I, I don't see numbers that give me any comfort in predicting uh, when we can begin to resume business as normal. It, it sounds like it's fair to say you don't think we're on the other side of this in a, in a month or two though. 
Yes, and I guess I'd look at what's happened in other countries, and it does seem to be a, a uh, roughly two-month period between when you begin to see serious problems and when uh, you begin to come out the other side, and uh, we're not there yet. So, Jim, aside from the health and people impacts of the, the virus, uh, let, let's shift our perspective to the impacts on the legal market. How, how are you seeing the COVID-19 uh, pandemic impact law firms? Are, are you seeing law firm closures already? Are, are, are you seeing law firms starting to reduce their staff significantly? What are you seeing at a macro level for law firms at the national level? The impact is significant already and increasing every day. I haven't seen a law firm close yet, but every day you see reports of law firms furloughing people. I, I guess the, the term you see is furlough, not not laying or not terminating people. Right. Uh, you see salary reductions. You see delays in compensating partners. Uh, delays in the schedule on which law firms pay out the profits to uh, partners. Uh, you see law firms delaying start dates for new associates who were expected to join the firm in September being deferred until next January. You see firms canceling their summer associate programs. These are very, very significant. You see across the board salary reductions in, in some law firms. These are very significant changes. Jim, I know another aspect of what you're doing with the, the task force is uh, helping identify and educate around the resources that are available from from a government perspective in terms of providing financial relief to law firms and other small businesses. Uh, do you have a perspective on on how effective those programs have been in alleviating some of the immediate pains that law firms are experiencing? Uh, I don't yet. I think it's too soon to tell. I do think that a number of uh, smaller firms would qualify as small businesses and be eligible from uh, persistence from uh, SBA loans, uh, but as of today, the SBA program is out of money. And I don't know whether the size of the loans and the terms of, of the loans are sufficient to, to get small law firms through. I, I think it's too early to tell. And Jim, may, maybe thinking about the, the ways that law firms can think about managing this crisis in ways they have direct control over, which they don't necessarily with uh, the accessibility, for example, of government programs. What are the areas you think it's most important for the legal profession to be focusing on today? Well, I think uh, first they need to be sure that they're equipped uh, to continue to provide legal services to clients who are depending on them. This, this is the issue of having to adapt to a new way of doing business and being able to serve clients uh, remotely for an extended period of time. I, I think that's the, uh, the first order of business, to be sure that you're accessible, to be sure that you can uh, protect client confidentiality. Uh, there was guidance that just came out. I, uh, I saw today from um, uh, in Pennsylvania about the ethical obligations of lawyers moving, working remotely and about uh, the importance of their being competent in functioning in this uh, new environment. In terms of managing the business of practicing law and the uh, the economics of law firms, that's going to vary from one law firm to another depending on what their cash position is and how, uh, uh, how much of a cushion that they might have had be before this began. Uh, but I do see uh, law firms trying to be thoughtful in 
mitigating the effect on the people they employ, trying to be thoughtful about what they're doing, taking things one step at a time, and keeping people informed. I see uh, law firms of all sizes being very uh, thoughtful about uh, letting people know where things stand, letting them know what they don't know, uh, so that if they're not able to make predictions about when things are, are going to improve, being honest about that. And uh, I... Um, and I think people appreciate that. Let me give you one example, not in the law firm world, but in the law school world. I'm on the board of Albany Law School. I grew up in Albany, New York, and my dad went to Albany Law School. I serve on the board to honor my dad's memory. And the dean of Albany Law School every day at four o'clock has a town meeting by video, by Zoom, that any student in the law school can, can uh, participate in where they just share information, they complain if they want to complain, they share stories, they get updates on things like the status of the summer bar exam and exams and grading policies. And the, the students are so grateful for that kind of outreach. They're hungry for information. And the accessibility of a dean under those circumstances is very uh, comforting. And I think um, uh, inspirational. <laughs> Uh, and I see that going on in many corners of the profession. It's a real opportunity, I think, Jim, to make a distinction between what does management look like and what does leadership look like. And I, yes. I, I think this is an opportunity to to lead that has is really unprecedented. But the the tools of an, of an effective manager pre COVID nineteen do not translate to necessarily being an effective leader in this time of uncertainty. And I think that's a pivot that many law firm leaders or aspiring leaders need to be painfully aware of. Absolutely. Uh, the, the impact of this on families, on the family environment, the stress, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, my wife and I have grown children, uh, but I every day I'm dealing with people who have kids at home and have, and they have to work from home and they are balancing uh, things that are very difficult uh, to, to balance. So in addition to the, uh, the, the stress of the coronavirus situation and having to adapt to, to new ways of working, they're, they're, they're living in a zoo <laughs> and, right. uh, and it's hard and, it makes a big difference when you have a boss who appreciates that and who acknowledges it and thanks you uh, for it. And I, and I see that happening. This is a time where empathy is a critically important leadership quality. I, I think empathy is, uh, I agree with you hundred percent more important today than it's, uh, than it's ever been. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Jim, also to get your perspective, I, I know, you know, through your role at the Legal Services Corporation, uh, you know, you, you obviously had access to justice as, as one of the things that was front of mind for you for uh, the better part of a decade and, and probably much longer than that. And I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us, number one, a little bit about the work you did at the Legal Services Corporation um, and and how it informed your perspective on access to justice. Uh, and then I want to talk about what some of the impacts COVID-19 might have in the long term around access to justice. But let's let's start there. 
the Legal Services Corporation is the country's largest funder of civil legal aid programs. The Legal Services Corporation funds 132 independent legal aid programs with more than 850 offices that serve every county and every state and the territories. It's a funding organization, not a direct services provider. Um, I think the most um, impactful and valuable part of my experience there was getting to work with the legal aid organizations that LSC funds, uh, being out visiting them, seeing the work they do, understanding what it's like uh, to have to uh, be dealing with an environment where you're overwhelmed with need that you cannot possibly satisfy. Uh, people don't realize, even within the legal profession, uh, the magnitude of the unmet need there. In 74% of civil cases in state courts today, at least one of the parties does not have a lawyer. 74%. When I talk to law students, I tell them that every case they read in law school is unrepresentative of what actually happens in the majority of cases in the United States. That's actually a guess, an educated guess on my part. But I'd make a guess, I'd make a bet that every case a law student reads in law school was litigated with lawyers on both sides of the case. Otherwise, the, the judge would not have been able to write an opinion of the quality necessary to get into a case book. Uh, that is not what happens. And our system was created by lawyers for lawyers on the assumption that everybody's got a lawyer. It's a system that works pretty well when people do have lawyers and not well at all when they don't. And my experience uh, in more than nine years at the Legal Services Corporation gave me an, an up-close view of, of what that means. And it left me with the sense that legal aid lawyers, those people on the ground serving low-income people who can't afford a lawyer are heroes. They are heroes of the legal profession. They are the lowest paid lawyers in the profession as a group. A legal aid lawyer is lucky to start at a salary of $50,000 a year, but they throw themselves into that work because they believe in the mission. They believe that it's a sacred obligation to provide access to justice to people whose economic circumstances otherwise wouldn't allow them to access the justice system, to access the system. And it, uh, it left me humbled, uh, actually. Um, uh, that's what a hero looks like uh, to me. I was glad uh, just to be able to play some small role in supporting them in their work day to day. And maybe moving to the, the next part of that question, Jim, when you, when you think about the, the COVID-19 crisis and some of the change that it's going to catalyze in the profession, and I, I think that ranges from you know, what I think will be inevitably uh, uh, increased willingness to work from home or work from a distributed environment, maybe reduced need for the expensive AAA downtown office space to deliver legal services and a willingness to, uh, to conduct client consultations and, and, and so on over, over the internet, over a, a Zoom call where we can have a effective collaboration even, even three time zones apart. Um, maybe a, a stronger adoption of technology to help make firms more efficient and, and more productive and better able to connect with that unmet need through, through the internet. Does, does any of this make you optimistic about what, what access to justice might look like on the other side of this crisis? Or do you think there will be positive impacts 
to be to be had here? I do, and I am optimistic. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. Courts uh, are now conducting proceedings remotely uh, for the first time at a level that they've never done before. Having to get to a courthouse is a barrier to justice for low-income people. Yep. Uh, having to, uh, to get transportation, uh, to be able to afford transportation, having to arrange for childcare, having to get time off from a low-wage job, to get to court is a barrier to justice. The requirement to show up physically shuts a lot of people out. Uh, if people can participate in court proceedings remotely, uh, that improves access to justice. And I think the current circumstances are proving to courts that this is doable. I think people are realizing that the technology is available. It has been for some time. It just hasn't been adopted in, in the ways that it's being adopted currently. And I think everybody's getting with it uh, pretty fast. So I, I, that encourage, that's, that's one important aspect of improving access to justice that I hope and expect will be permanent. Another is one you referred to. Uh, matching lawyers to people who need help regardless of where the two are located. Uh, there is a mismatch in our country today between the location of low-income people and the location of lawyers who might be willing to volunteer pro bono to, to help them out. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Georgia. Uh, in Georgia, 70% uh, of the lawyers are located in the five-county Atlanta metropolitan area. 70% of the poverty population in Georgia is located outside the five-county Atlanta metropolitan area. There are counties in Georgia that have no lawyers at all in, in them. Uh, if you can allow lawyers in one part of a state in a metropolitan area to deliver legal services to people in a rural area uh, through video, through a Zoom conference uh, like this, uh, you've just increased access to, to justice by making available real legal resources that were previously out of reach to low-income people in uh, sparsely populated parts of the United States. So I, I see a lot of positive developments here as people get comfortable with uh, delivering legal services, providing court services in new ways. And, and Jim, a related question, I'm curious what your, your perspective is on the, the role of low bono legal services in all of this as well. And, and if we do enable lawyers to shift maybe to a lower cost delivery model that is facilitated by the internet, facilitated by technology, facilitated by a lower overhead cost structure uh, by eliminating uh, leases, for example, from the what's embedded in the average hourly rate for a lawyer in the US, which is $250 an hour, which, which many even moderate income level folks find out of reach from an affordability perspective. Uh, do, you, do you think, what, what's your perspective on that and whether it makes, uh, we have hope again that there will be increased access to legal services and, and access to justice as a result of this crisis? I am hopeful about that. I, I think that uh, we're getting a lesson in how you can reduce overhead expenses. I, I used to be managing partner of a big law firm, and the, the second largest expense of a law firm after personnel is rent. Uh, my, my law firm at the, at the time I, I stepped down as managing partner, which was some years ago now, uh, was paying $47 million a year in rent. Wow, that's a that's a very substantial expense. Uh, I think that 
uh, for individual practitioners. They're learning now that they uh, don't may not need the uh, the office digs downtown that they've been been paying top dollar for. That they can get by with less space uh, or hotel hoteling type uh, space arrangements, shared office space. Even big law firms, I think, uh, will begin to realize that they can move in the direction of. Uh, the accounting firms and uh, not necessarily have a personal lawyer for every uh, an office uh, for every lawyer five days a, a week and if you can drive down the uh, the costs of practicing law you can increase access to justice by uh, lowering uh, the rates that people who are able to pay something but but not much can afford well put well, Jim, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, talking today. And I wanted to conclude with the following question, which is, uh, if, if you have a, a main message to leave with our listeners, speaking to them either as legal professionals or, or as human beings or, or both. Uh, my message is one of hope. Uh, uh, what I am seeing is ingenuity and adaptability and generosity, kindness, uh, good qualities coming out in people. There is a sense that we're all in this together. I think it's eye-opening to have everybody sharing uh, a common experience uh, like this across the country. And we're all learning something uh, from it. I think that good will come of this. I think that lawyers will be more effective practitioners in the service of their clients. I think our society will ultimately better, be better off because of this experience that we're sharing. We're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. I think that's a, a terrific note to, to end on. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Uh, your work uh, on the ABA coronavirus task force has been incredible. Thank you for stepping up to the, the call of duty of, of chairing that task force. I look forward to working with you on that task force over the coming months and uh, stay healthy and enjoy, uh, enjoy your, your wife and your daughter's company over the, the coming months. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 